Well, not to brag, but I am really good at killing plants. <laughs> I get these ones from Trader Joe's sometimes, and they are so lively and colorful and firm. And then before you know it, they are not. They are just wilty and lifeless. I don't know if it's that I overwater them or I underwater them or I put them in the sun too much. I haven't quite figured it out. But there is one kind of plant that I can usually keep alive, and I do say usually. That is the succulent, <laughs> the good old succulent. I have grown to appreciate these plants. It's, they propagate. You know, all you need is a, a leaf or a bit of the stem, and before you know it, you have more succulents. And because I appreciate these plants, I have come to admire a particular neighbor's garden. She has these succulents growing on succulents, and it's just beautiful. And one day I was walking by, and I complimented her on her garden, and she told me, Feel free to take as many as you like. They are just the gift that keeps on giving. And I was totally caught off guard, thinking, does she know who she's talking to? <laughs> If I really took as many succulents as I wanted to take, ooh, that would be crazy. But realistically, I'm also thinking I would feel terribly awkward going over to her garden and taking some of her plants. Yet there was that one time where I was bold, and I went over there and I grabbed one of those plants, and I felt so uncomfortable. <laughs> I just I put it in my pocket and kept walking because <laughs> I'm thinking these neighbors are going to think that I am stealing these different plants. But what a sweet lady! She probably wouldn't have said that if she had some normal spring flowers. She was able to say that because they are the gift that keeps on giving. You're able to have this beautiful garden, and then you are able to pass it on to somebody else. Well, take that image and think of the garden of our souls, if you will. Our godliness and our maturity should be just like those succulents. That is the gift that keeps on giving. The more beauty we have inside of us, the more we are able to pass it on to others. In fact, the work that God has done in us is meant to be reproducible. He expects that from us, for us to live a holy life, and then by means of example, by encouraging each other, even teaching each other, we're supposed to pass it on. And in a sense, really help others develop this beautiful garden of holiness, which then they will hopefully pass on to others. It's this rewarding continuum that we get to be a part of, where there's those ahead of us that are encouraging us, and then we hold out our hands to help the people that are coming after us. It's it's women encouraging women. What it really is is it's a team effort towards holiness. And the passage we're going to study this summer will help us to do that well. So, if you're not there already, turn to Titus chapter two, and we're going to read about this God-ordained model of discipleship. And as you're reading it, you can picture the context. We have Titus and we have Paul, and they have worked together to plant some churches on this island named Crete. And Paul had gone off to go do some other ministry. He was no longer there on this island, but Titus still was, and he was there developing these new churches. 
And so Paul was writing to Titus to encourage him to tell him some of the things that he should be teaching these new churches. And then as we get to chapter two, he's telling Titus what he should be teaching the specific groups within the churches. So he's saying, this is what you should teach the older men, and this is what you should teach the older women, and the younger women, and then the younger men, and so on. And that's where we're at as we get to Titus chapter two, verses three through five. So let's read it. It says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So simple and yet so effective. The older women living godly lives, teaching the younger women to have godly lives. And what an impact it has, it says, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Well, today we're going to focus just on verse 3, the role and character of the older women in the church. And depending on how you are feeling this morning, you may or may not think that this verse applies to you. Uh, Just for clarification, Paul, when he's writing, he's thinking of women probably who are about 60 years old. But regardless of your age, this verse applies to you for several different reasons. First of all, if Paul has in mind the older women and the younger women are supposed to be learning from the older women, they're going to be learning from this example, but ultimately it's where we are all headed, right? This is the goal that we should all be having is to be this kind of godly woman. And realistically, these are just basic biblical things that we should be working on. Also in this text, there's this principle that's not primarily or only about physical age. It's about spiritual maturity, about those who have become godly, who are following after God, and who have something to offer those who are coming after them. And so in that sense, we are all older than someone. But then there's this other way that we should look at the text, and that is to see, do we have these kind of older women in our lives? Do we have these people that we can look towards, that we can say, yeah, I can learn from that woman? And in that sense, we all have someone who is further along than us also. So we're going to look at this text from all these different angles, making sure that we are being this kind of godly woman, and then also making sure we have this kind of godly woman in our life that can spur us on. So let's start with that first description that it has. It says, older women, likewise, and likewise it says because it was just talking about the older men and how they should be godly. So older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. That means, of course, holy or dignified or devout. But the literal meaning gives us a helpful picture to work with. Reverent literally means priestly. So priestly in behavior. One commentary said that the women are to carry into daily life the demeanor of priestesses in a temple. And what does that mean? Well, we think of the temple. A temple is a place where people would come to worship God, where they would come to bring sacrifices. It was this important place where God's presence was said to dwell in a special kind of way. And so you would have the priests there who were there doing their duties. They were set apart to serve God, to work in this place. And no doubt with a a demeanor and a poise 
that was dignified, that was worshipful, that was respectful. They were dedicated to God and they acted like it. So take that kind of dignified godliness and transfer it over to normal life. Paul says to tell Titus to tell the older women that they are to operate in this kind of way, to show that they are set apart to live for and to serve God and they act like it, to take holiness seriously. So put it down this way for point number one. As we think of what Paul tells the older women that they should do, we need to make sure that we are and we also follow women who take holiness seriously. And this is certainly what God has in mind for his people. You're in Titus chapter 2. Why don't you scan your eyes down to verse 14? It's talking about Jesus, our Savior, and then it says in verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus redeemed us. He bought us with his own blood to have his own set-apart people. That's who we are, and that's how we should live. It might take a little bit of time to really think, when do I not take holiness as seriously as I ought? Maybe even do a, a mental checklist of your day. Think of yourself each day. You wake up, and what, what is the first thing that you do? And then how do you go about your day? How do you do the tasks that are in front of you? How do you treat the people that you come across? When do you lose your cool, especially with the people that are harder to deal with? When are you tempted to be more like the world, the things that you watch, the things that you listen to, even the things that you think about? When does your life show that you are forgetting that you live for and you serve a holy, powerful, perfect God. We take holiness seriously because God does, because he is holy and he is our God. It's like being at work and remembering who your boss is. And every time in scripture that we get a glimpse of who God is, we see he is mind-blowingly holy. We see it everywhere. I think especially as we get to the end, when we get to Revelations, then we see all these glimpses of who God is, what we will see him as. One that stood out to me was in Revelation 4, where these majestic creatures, they're said to be saying day and night, over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They're just posted there to declare over and over again that God is holy. Or Isaiah 6, I'm sure you know that passage, where the train of the Lord's robe, it fills the temple, and we see his majestic glory. And then there's these heavenly beings calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Exodus 15:9 asks, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the answer is that there is no one. There is no one like our God. And we are set apart to serve this God. From the moment we wake up to the time when our head hits the pillows, when do we not live like it? 
regardless of your age. This is the kind of example that you should be showing to the younger generation around you. And so often what we really want is we want to be relevant. Whether it's the jeans that we wear, or the way we do our hair, or the things we know about, or the way that we talk, we want them to think that we are relevant and we are not out of style. But what I heard one person say was the younger generation, they don't need our relevance. They need our reverence. They need to see what it looks like for women who show that they are dedicated to God in every detail of life, who, who have like an aura of holiness. I think of when I used to work at Starbucks. Back before I had kids, before I was an elementary teacher, whether I worked for two hours or whether I worked for eight hours, you could always tell I worked for Starbucks because I smelled like a Frappuccino. <laughs> Certainly my green apron smelled like a Frappuccino, my clothes smelled, my hair smelled. I didn't smell like everybody else because I had a certain job and anyone who was around me knew it. And of course, I could shower that off, but when it comes to our commitment to God, it should not be showered off. We should smell like holiness. It should be clear to anyone who is around us that that is what we care about and that is what we do. And it is a smell that we couldn't shake if we wanted to. And the older women in our life should certainly be the same way. The people that we look up to, that we want to be like, they should not be women who are successful by the world's standards. Women who everybody likes, who have the perfect home, they just look so nice, or that are living in luxury, or the women who somehow seem to have avoided aging, or have top-notch health. We should want to find and look up to women who smell like holiness. They love being in God's word. They love obeying God's word. They want to be like Christ. They want to please Christ with their life. And when you find someone like that, learn from her. Take notes to see how she lives. Ask her if she can teach you some things. So that is the kind of Titus II older women we should all have in our lives. And of course, the more mature you get, the more you'd say you fit in that older category, the more slim pickings you will have. But at minimum, you could have a mature, godly friend where you mutually encourage each other to take holiness seriously. And I'm sure there's books and there's biographies of women who have gone before you that have done it well that you could learn from. Together, all of us, older, younger, everyone in between, we should be taking holiness seriously and encouraging each other in that. The next two characteristics that Paul mentions in Titus 2, they are negative ones that we should avoid. Back in Titus 2, it says that the older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. So let's first think through how not to be a slanderer. Slander is talking negatively about someone. It often damages the reputation of someone. It doesn't matter if what you're saying is true. It doesn't matter if what you're saying is not true. It's just harmful talk that shouldn't be said, 
that doesn't need to be said. So the first way to think through how not to be a slander is just to not say the things that don't need to be said, that shouldn't be said. That's point number two. And we do this in so many ways where we can fall into the trap of slander. We do it when we talk about what bothers us about people or even what bothers us about institutions or programs or churches. We can do it under the guise of concern, you know, that this is going on and it's kind of a big deal and we should probably be praying about this thing. Or we do it just because we want to be in the know. We, we want to show somebody that we know something and we're being thoughtless, not realizing that the things that we're saying are actually harmful to say. And we certainly do it when we're frustrated and we want to vent. There's usually those one or two people that we feel like it's safe to vent to. It could be your best friend, it could be your mom, it could be your husband. But we gotta think, is what we're saying actually slander? Is it really good to be saying, or are we really just slandering to someone who it feels safe to slander to? And you know it could be slander if you're saying something about somebody, and if it were to come across this screen, you would be ashamed at the things that came out of your mouth. Or if you were to accidentally pocket call somebody, and they were to hear what you said about somebody, or maybe the person you are talking about heard what you said, or if it was on their message, they were able to hear the message of it and replay it over and over again. If you were mortified by that, that's probably slander. Or if you're just talking about someone and you don't feel particularly kind in your heart, it's probably slander. I came across these interesting synonyms about slander that just show how unkind it can be. Words like backbiting, mudslinging, scandal-mongering, muckraking. Interesting to think about those word pictures, throwing around muck with our words. Backbiting, hurting someone who doesn't see it coming. Scandal-mongering, someone who's just looking for scandals to talk about. And all of that's horrible. But none of those are as bad as the word that is translated slanderer in our text. It's the plural form of the word diabolos, where we get the word devil, the one who accuses, one who makes himself an enemy, an adversary. We sense that we are about to say something that we shouldn't about somebody else. We need to realize that we are being devilish. And we never want to be that way. We don't even want to be a part of conversations where this kind of thing is happening. And think about summer. We're going to have these times where we have more time together sitting around chatting. We don't even want to be in those conversations. Which reminds me of another synonym that I learned, scuttlebutt. It's a word from the early 19th century that refers to a spot on a ship where there would be a container of water. So the sailors would all come to this container of water to get the water that they need, and because they were all there, it was this gathering spot where they would end up sharing the latest rumors and the latest gossip. And so that spot became a synonym for gossip and rumors, scuttlebutt. And we don't want to do any of that. This summer, we have these gathering spots, right? We have the pool, and we have the beach, and we have the barbecues. And in none of those locations do we want to be scuttlebutting or slander-mongering, or muckraking, or backbiting, or mudslinging. 
and we think we might be in a conversation where that's about to happen, just bring out one of those words and see if it doesn't change the conversation. Ladies, come on, let's no, do, do no scuttle button and steer the conversation a different direction because among Christians, we should all be in that same camp. We don't want that. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4. Turn there, if you will. Ephesians chapter 4. We see that it just makes sense as a Christian that we would be done with such ugly, unloving sins. Ephesians chapter 4, I'll read verse 31 and 32. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So these are all sins that are against each other. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How we treat each other should mirror the way Christ has treated us. He forgave us. Our hearts should mirror that kind of kindness, and it certainly doesn't when we have slander coming out of our mouths. That shows, in fact, so many types of sin could be what motivates, what instigates the kind of words that come out of our mouth when we are slandering. Even, even when you slander in your head, right? Even when those things don't actually come out of your mouth, our hearts are showing that they are ugly. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. We gotta check our hearts and repent when we give in to this ugly sin. And sadly, this is one of those weaknesses that all types of women fall into, even those that we normally see as the tightest to older, godly women in our lives. But we have to realize that even our role models stop being good role models when they start talking bad about other people. It doesn't matter if your mom or your best friend or your small group leader is a godly woman. She is not being a good example when she starts to slander. And that should, of course, give us all a little kick in the booty because we do not want to have our good examples stop the moment that we open our mouths. We want whatever comes out of our mouth to be with wisdom and with kindness. And that, of course, is the description of the model Proverbs 31 woman. It says that she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That should be the standard for our words as Christian women. One final thought on this. If you don't want to be a slanderer, you shouldn't be listening to a lineup of slander. You know, the internet mentors, if you will. It doesn't matter if it is about religion or politics or vaccinations or any other random kind of drama. We need to think of slander as a language that we just don't speak. Just like you would not listen to a podcast in Chinese, you are not going to listen to a podcast that is full of slander. And just like you're not going to get in, on social media and engage in Chinese, you're not going to get on there and engage in slanderese. We are women who are done with slander. We're putting it away from us, as Ephesians 4 said. Let's go back and read Titus 2 and look at the other behavior that Paul says women should steer clear of. It says that we shouldn't 
be slaves to much wine. Commentaries give a few thoughts on the context of wine drinking in the day. Uh, one was simply the fact that older women probably had some extra time on their hands and they were in the home, and so they had access to all the food and the drink of the house, and they could become captivated by that. There was also the fact that wine was used medicinally then. Uh, you know, wine would have been diluted, and the women might have used it for the aches and the pains that they would have had as they were getting older. And so what started as appropriate ended up being used in excess. And then there's just the fact that the women of the day wanted to be liberated from the reputation that they had, that they were self-controlled women. And like today, they just wanted to live a little. But whatever started it, it became enslaving and addicting. And we're a slave to something that has control over us, whether it's wine or something else. And we could be wrongly controlled by all kinds of things, by our emotions, by our hormones, by our fears, by our past, by what people think of us. All of these things can enslave us if we let them. And then like the women that Paul was writing about, there's so many things that we can look to for relief that we feel like we just have to have. Or so many things that we crave that we feel entitled to. Or so many things that we look to to fill us up when we feel empty. It could be for pleasure. It could be for leisure. It could be for comfort. It could be for relief. It could be, for, it could be food or exercise or coffee or shopping or pills, or Netflix, or books, or just me time. Whatever it is we would say, I just have to have this, whatever it is. Or I'm not okay unless I have this. Or I can't do what God wants me to do unless I have this. Because what all of that comes down to is I, me. I need this thing or I won't be okay. And really, all enslavement comes down to be in, being enslaved by our own wants. It's allowing ourselves to get self-absorbed, where we're just so focused on that thing it is that we want, and in that way we're being so focused on ourselves and our own desires. And that is certainly what we should not be. We need to be women who aren't self-absorbed. That's point number three. We don't want to be self-absorbed. And of course, there is not a single one of us that wants to think of ourselves as self-absorbed. But just think objectively for a moment about someone who would be enslaved, addicted to wine, or anything else. Just imagine them beelining towards that thing, that thing that they just feel like they have to have. They don't care who's in their way. They don't care what's going on outside of them or how it affects people. They just are right there. That's what they want. That's all that they can focus on is their own desires. And we can take on that self-absorption in the things that we feel entitled to, the things that we feel like we have to have. And even if this thing that we want, the desire that we have is innocent, food or exercise or whatever it is, being self-absorbed about it is not. Even if the thing that we desire is a good thing. Uh, you know, I, I just want a, a godly husband. I, I just want better friends. I just want to get pregnant and have kids. 
if that desire becomes excessive, then so quickly we can just end up being self-focused about it. And that's not what the world's going to tell you. The world is going to tell you, you know, absolutely, whatever it is that you need, whatever you need to fill up your cup, you need to do that first, especially before you have anything that you can give to anybody else. You need to fill that up. You need to focus on yourself first. But where is that in the Bible? I mean, I'm thinking whatever it is that you have to have, that you have to fill up your cup before you can be selfless to somebody else, that's probably the thing that's enslaving you. The thing that you feel like you must have. Because realistically, we always have plenty to give. If we have God, we are able to give. He gives us his power inside of us to do whatever it is he calls us to do. And we have him and we can rely on him in prayer. We can depend on him. We can go to his word. He gives us relief. He gives us comfort. When we have God, we have all that we need. We do not need to be enslaved to anything in this world. And one of the key ways we show this to the younger women in our life as we encourage them is we just need to show that we are all about Jesus. Because when we show that we are all about him, we are not so focused on ourselves and our passing pleasures. And that's what we need to find ourselves talking about. That Jesus is what satisfies. That knowing him is what makes life worth living. That his word is what satisfies. That following after him is what's truly good. We need to show that our hearts align with Psalm 73:25, which says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's Psalm 73, 25. And of course, that's what we look for, the older women in our life, in a world where everyone is obsessed with whatever it is they feel like being obsessed with. We should look for the women who are satisfied in God alone. That he is who they turn to. Women whose life sings the song, Give Me Jesus. I don't know if you know that song. If you don't, you should look it up. It's a simple song, very simple lyrics, but so powerful. The lines are simply, in the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. And when I am alone, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And that should describe all of us. When we wake up, it's all we need. When we are alone and when we come to die. Because we have God, we have all that we need. And there is nothing that we need to be enslaved to. There's one more characteristic that Paul mentions for the older women. It's actually only one word in Greek, though it's seven in English. In English, it reads that they're to teach what is good. But the one word in Greek comes from two different roots, one being that teaching part, the instructing, really being skilled as a teacher. And then the second part, that which is good, uh, which is good or right, virtuous, even beautiful. 
So we're supposed to be a teacher of good, right, virtuous, beautiful things. So the idea in this text is that the older women, they have a responsibility to come alongside the young women and to teach them how God wants them to live. And really in very practical terms, because we see that as we go down in the text, let's read verses four and five again and just get a picture of some of the things that the older women will end up teaching the young women. So it says that they're to teach what is good, in verse four it says, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. And that, that's not easy stuff. I mean, self-controlled, working hard at home, being pure, being submissive. A woman who's going to teach that kind of thing is a woman that is willing to say what needs to be said. So the final point as we learn about Paul's instructions for the older women is, while the slanderer says things that shouldn't be said, the godly woman is going to say things that need to be said. And God's standards sure are not popular these days. But we need to be women who know what God expects, who live it out, and then encourage the generation after us to do likewise. And the idea is not formal teaching, you know, behind a pulpit, teaching in these different formal kinds of ways, but it is, it's casual teaching. It's life on life. It's that encouragement. It's this relational kind of teaching. And it goes far beyond basic advice that a seasoned older woman would give to a younger woman. I'm sure you agree. We have all kinds of advice all around us. I think it's picked up massively in the last five years. There is advice from every different direction, from older sources, godly sources, from ungodly sources, from social media gurus of all kinds, Google, of course. There is advice everywhere. Um, my kids even, they can follow advice, instructions from kid YouTubers. I'm talking like six-year-olds giving instruction videos. It's so much a thing that probably at least once a week, I will find my seven-year-old doing her chores with an iPad in hand. And what she is doing is pretending to make YouTube videos. And as she's doing them, she's like, hi guys, this is Maddie. Today, I'm going to teach you how to wash the dishes. So the first thing that you do is, it gives us a chuckle every time, but this is just normal advice going all throughout the world through the internet. And I'm, I'll be honest, I find it quite helpful. There's these people that I follow, like on Instagram, feeding littles, how to feed your children who are under one, and it's just genius. It's like, why didn't they have this for my last four children? So helpful. And of course, Google, you can type any question it is that you want and you will get all kinds of answers. What the younger women of our generation need is not tips or tricks or steps. They need older women to come alongside them who care about them, who love them, who know them, who will be willing to spend time with them, who care about holiness and are willing to encourage them in that, who are willing to say the things that need to be said, who are willing to dig deeper in God's word with them, who are passionate about teaching what is good.
And all of us can be that to someone. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have something that you can offer someone. And start by thinking of your family, making sure that your daughters are being invested into and your granddaughters and your daughter-in-laws and even your nieces, maybe even your daughter's friends, that they have an older woman that's coming alongside them, encouraging them to follow after Christ. You might even have someone in your small group. I mean, no matter your age, there is a ministry here with women that would be younger than you that you can invest into. There's opportunities everywhere. We just have to take them. And in some way or another, we can all receive this kind of investment. I think especially of the physical age that Paul mentions at 60, for however long it takes you to count backwards from 60, the longer that it takes you, the more that you should feel like, yeah, I really do need this kind of older godly woman investing in my life, giving me wisdom. And the newer you are in the faith, if it doesn't take you long to count up the years that you've been saved, the more you should feel like, I really need this kind of encouragement. I need a godly woman to come alongside me. And then the more you are there in that older category where there's less people that are ahead of you, you take all that energy and you invest it in the people that are coming after you. I was reading about this older woman who made such a difference She's a simple gal, very living a humble life, not a real high-profile ministry, but she took the Titus II command seriously. And it wasn't until her funeral that everyone realized what a difference that she had made. Because all of a sudden, there was all these younger women talking, and they realized how many people she had invested in. And there were these gals saying, yeah, she would have me over to her house, and yeah, she would have meals with me. And yeah, she would always send me these cards. And she would always call me. A huge difference she made, not by doing anything extravagant. No one even knew it. Just a humble gal serving in a very intentional way and making a massive, eternal difference in people's lives. You should develop a relationship with the younger women around you so that they will gladly hear from you what needs to be said. With wisdom and courage and kindness, you can invest because you have a lot to offer the generation of young women coming behind you. This whole thing reminds me of one of my favorite Awana games as a kid, the Baton Relay Race. Maybe you've seen it played. Each team has three different people, and then they have their baton. And so the way it works is you have the first person with a baton and they run around the circle and then they pass it to the second person who takes the baton, who runs around the circle, and then passes it to the third person who runs around the circle. If you're good at this, this is how it works. You have the second person who is actually watching the first person run around the circle. They know where they're at. They kind of are even tracking their speed in a sense because as they come up, the second person wants to get a running start with the first person. They even kind of run together for a moment before that first person peels off because their turn is done and the second person goes. And the third person is watching the second person. They're making sure that they see where they're at. They're watching how they run, even tracking their speed so they can run together for a moment and the second person peels off and the third person goes around. That is how you win the game. Trust me, I've been to the Awana Olympics. I've seen it done. 
when it comes to our team in life, team holiness, I'm calling us, the people who are set apart for God's possession, we are meant to operate like that relay race, where you have those who are going first, the older in a sense, and they are leading by example. And they have that truth, and they are looking for that person that they can pass that truth off to who will grab it and run with it. And that person is looking for the person that will take that truth, that will grab it, and they will run with it. And we all got one go around to give it all we got. Like Paul Apley says in 1 Corinthians 9, in, all, in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. And in that text, Paul actually is speaking about living a holy, self-controlled life. Exactly what Titus 2 encourages us to do, to take holiness seriously and to have self-control of our words and self-control of our appetites and we all get one go-around to give it all we got, to live a godly life. But we're not meant to do it alone. We got those ahead of us, and we got those behind us, and we are all supposed to be encouraging each other, really cheering each other on in this. And so, yes, it matters how you go around your circle, how you go about this life. You're going to answer to God for how you live. You want to live a holy life. But it is bigger than us. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. We are part of the team that God has picked out for his glory. And that's what it says right there in the text. That we're to do this well so that the word of God is not reviled. And what an honor it is to be on this team. To represent God. Let's run hard, and let's do it together, older, younger, and everyone in between. Let's pray. God, I thank you for such a great text to start our summer with. Just think of these four qualities and how our lives could be dramatically impacted if we really thought through these things. And Lord, it, maybe there's not things that came to mind right now where we think, oh, I, I need to take my holiness more seriously in this area or I slander in this area or whatever it is. I pray that you would bring these things to mind, that over the next week, we would see where we don't come close to your standard of the older godly women that you want us to be. God, I pray that our summer would be so much more profitable. There'd be so much less sin in our life and in our church because we think through these four things. And I pray, Lord, that we would also take seriously this idea of investing well, investing in the people that are coming after us, looking for the people that can invest in us. And I pray that we'd really work together well as a team, older women and younger women, that we'd make a difference in each other's lives, that we would encourage each other. God, I pray that not just our summer would be impacted, but for the rest of our lives, we would be more godly women because we take the truths in this text and put them into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.